This is episode 181 of That Shakespeare Life. Don't forget the video version of our show, along with documentary films, award-winning animated plays, and more video content from the life of William Shakespeare is available inside the video streaming library of That Shakespeare Life. Find out more and subscribe today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Hi, I'm Steve Thompson from Headland Archaeology. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to That Shakespeare Life, my friend, Cassidy Cash. There was a clear relationship between news and print, even before the newspapers. Sometimes a letter would include printed news as an enclosure, And sometimes a news pamphlet would be a reproduction of a letter. This was often, especially the case when it was a letter from a general on the field of battle, because the the epistolary form was thought to give particular authority to this and give it extra credence, even when it had been reproduced in print. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The rise of the printing press created a precursor to the modern-day newspaper, where printed publications like broadsheets and pamphlets served to communicate ideas, updates, and notices about new laws, the progress of wars abroad, and even comic stories, true crime tales, and anecdotes. People who deliver letters are referred to in Shakespeare's plays as the, quote, post, and letters are often referred to as news, with Shakespeare using the word news an astonishing 326 times across his works. There's obviously an overlap between messengers, oral tradition, news, and letters for Shakespeare's lifetime. But what exactly was the importance of written communication, and what should we understand about the system of letter delivery and communication when we see characters named only messenger or post appear on Shakespeare's stage? Did Shakespeare have things like envelopes, stamps, or even a postal address. Here today to take us back to the 16th and early 17th century to explore the role of letters and communication system in Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and author of The Invention of News, How the World Came to Know About Itself, Dr. Andrew Pedigree. Andrew Pedigree is a fellow of the British Academy and professor of modern history at the University of St. Andrews and director of the Universal Short Title Catalog. He is the author of over a dozen books in the fields of Reformation history and the history of communication, including Reformation and the Culture of Persuasion, The Book in the Renaissance, The Invention of News, Brand Luther 1517, Print and Making of the Reformation, and The Bookshop of the World, Making and Trading Books in the Dutch Golden Age. His latest book, The Library of Fragile History will be published by Profile on October 14th, 2021 in the UK and by Basic Books in the US. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. In Andrew's book, The Invention of News, How the World Came to Know About Itself, he writes, quote, even before the creation of newspapers, the appetite for news was proverbial. How now, what news was a common English greeting frequently evoked on the London stage, end quote. 
We can see this evocation in Shakespeare's works, where the bard uses the word news frequently with an expression such as, here's more news from Antony and Cleopatra, as well as, what's the new news here at the new court? in As You Like It, along with an astonishing 326 other times that Shakespeare uses the word news from his Mm -hmm. London stage. Andrew, in a world, as you say, that existed before the invention of proper newspapers, how did letters play a role in circulating the happenings of the day for Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, it, it is astonishing how much, how often the expression news comes up in, in, in Shakespeare's plays. And I'm, I'm glad you've uh, counted them for us because uh, that says, says us going through them again. But it just shows how, how networked in he was to the whole news network in Britain at the time. Now, that said, I think it's very important to say at the beginning that oral tr- tr- transmission was the most important element in the ecology of news in Shakespeare's time. Indeed, that was the case right up until the 19th century. And that's how most people got their news, by way- word of mouth in an age before universal literacy, and why travellers were so eagerly pumped for news when they arrived in, in a village or a tavern. That said, the exchange of letters did play an important role, but mostly among the better off. Most letters would have been quickly scribbled messages. Uh, Those who exchanged news of a more substantial number, this was mostly the prerogative of the better off, the nobility, the gentry, the higher churchmen and merchants. And many of these had their own news network it was necessary for their for their power or for their trade now this exclusively was partly because news was so expensive uh, as i was sure we'll come on to and partly because learning to write was taught after reading it was taught quite independently of reading and so it was a more exclusive skill because many would leave school as, as soon as they'd learned to read That said, there was a clear relationship between news and print, even before the newspapers. Sometimes a letter would include printed news as an enclosure, and sometimes a news pamphlet would be a reproduction of a letter. This was often, especially the case when it was a letter from a general on the field of battle, because the the epistolary form was thought to give particular authority to this and give it extra credence even when it had been reproduced in print. When it comes to delivering official notices, Andrew writes that messengers were highly trusted individuals since, quote, a news report delivered verbally by a trusted friend or messenger was far more likely to be believed than an anonymous written report, end quote. As an example, in Henry VI, Part Three, King Louis the 11th says, quote, then England's messenger return in post and tell false Edward, thy supposed king, that Louis of France is sending over masquerers to revel it with him and his new bride, end quote. In this scene, the character to whom this official information is being dictated to by the king and queen of France is named only, quote, a post. He has only a few lines, and those are to deliver letters to the king and queen Margaret, which the Earl Oxford refers to as, quote, her news. And the king asks the queen, quote, 
what are thy news? As she reads the letters delivered by this post, there's clearly a relationship here between the terms news, post, and letters. But for those of us that are far removed from the 16th century, Andrew, please help us understand what's happening in this scene. Are the words post and messenger the same thing? They're only partially the, the, the same thing, because I think post here has two meanings. First, the post does indeed refer to the king's messenger, who has uh, brought Edward's message. But we also have the meaning return in post. And here, I think Louis means return post haste, that is, immediately. Now, it should be said that both Louis and Edward had access to a Rolls-Royce service for their exclusive use. This is the Royal Postal Service. This is necessary for Europe's monarchs, not only to communicate with each other, but to get their instructions to commanders and loyal subjects out in the field or in the country towns. So King spent copiously on relays of messages and stations along the main roads. Although this was so expensive that in England at least, and certainly in France, during peacetime, this comprehensive postal service was allowed to fall in disarray. Merchants also had their own postal service, easier to maintain because they had consignments of goods going to other ports, mostly by sea, so they could send letters to their agents abroad in exactly the same way. And of course, merchants have almost the most need of news of all because they need to know whether it's safe to put their goods out to sea and whether they'll get there. The church also had willing messengers in the form of pilgrims crisscrossing Europe. But the best system of all was that established by the Emperor Charles V, linking his vast dominions across Europe. And he came up with a different system. And this is the key to the modern postal service. Rather than paying the cost himself, he gave the postal monopoly to the family of turn and taxes who, in addition to carrying official messages for the emperor, were allowed to carry commercial mail. This made them a fortune and gave the emperor the best mail service in Europe. If the messenger was trusted to deliver a verbal message, was he also tasked with writing down the message into the letters, or would individuals send written letters that they had done through this messenger named the post? Well. I would expect monarchs to dictate their letters to trusted scribes, so the messenger wouldn't have that responsibility. They'd they'd be responsible for carriage rather than taking it down. Uh, I think queens often wrote some letters themselves simply for the sake of confidentiality. They didn't want to gossip around the court. And you had to trust your scribe just as you had to trust your, your messenger. In this same scene from Henry VI, Part Three, Prince Edward remarks on the delivered letters by saying, quote, Nay, mark how Lewis stamps, as he were nettled. I hope all's for the best, end quote. Andrew, did early modern letters have postage stamps? Not yet, uh, and they didn't have uh, envelopes either. Letters were generally written on large sheets of paper and then folded or, or sealed. Uh, there's a lot of really brilliant work going on at the moment on how letters were folded. And your listeners can check out their wonderful website, letterlocking.org, if they want to know more. And write to them if you'd like them to set up a, a workshop. They're really friendly and charismatic, and they've come and 
taught us all how to fold letters in St. Andrews. At the level of the news exchange, uh, being discussed the news examples so far, you, you can really do without addresses. You knew where the king was to be found, or if he'd moved to a different castle, the unfortunate messenger would just traipse off after him. Addresses become an issue when the letter writing moves down the social scale, and then a letter might be addressed to a tavern, an inn, or the local priest or minister, allowing them to pass them on. Letters could mostly find their addressees, but not always, and not always fast. People could be waiting weeks for a friend or or carter going in the right direction, and not all those people could be relied on to uh, deliver. Well, as for stamps, we've still got a long way to wait, I'm afraid. In 1680, an English merchant in London established a postal service just within the city, uh, a mail system that delivered letters and small parcels exclusively around London for the sum of one penny. The confirmation that this postage had been paid but by, was indi- indicated by the use of a hand stamp to frank the mailed items as they went out. But this experiment was quickly shut down uh, because it infringed the royal monopoly, and I don't think they wanted this sort of a system to be in place. So stamps as we know them await the 19th century. The news market in Shakespeare's lifetime was one that Andrew writes was, quote, a real market, but that as the news became more plentiful in the 16th and 17th centuries, the problem of establishing the veracity of news reports would remain acute. The news market was humming with conflicting reports, become all too plausible. Lives, fortunes, even the fate of kingdoms could depend on acting on the right information, end quote. From the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, which was entirely preventable were it not for an outbreak of plague that detained the messenger, to the comic use of letters delivered by Speed in Shakespeare's Two Gentlemen of Verona, and even the contemporaries of Shakespeare, Thomas Kidd, Christopher Marlowe, and Robert Greene, they all used letters and the messed up delivery system to cause havoc as a theme in their works. All this time, I've thought the application of a letter delivery tragedy was purely Shakespeare or his contemporaries creating a good story and causing a problem that needed to be solved. But when we look at the real system of letter delivery in Shakespeare's lifetime, there's a realism, I think, is that's important there. Andrew, was the letter delivery system in Shakespeare's lifetime as chaotic and unreliable as we see on his stage? What you're describing here with letters gone astray reminds me slightly of every American drama where something terrible happens because a key character can't get reception on their cell phone. <laughs> uh, and perhaps this happens, but surely not as often as it's used as a, a, as a dramatic prop. In the case of the 16th century postal service, I would say unreliable, but certainly not chaotic. Much of it, particularly at the level of Shakespeare and his non-noble characters, relied on informal contacts, as we've described above. Sometimes you might ask a merchant or a ship's captain to take a letter, and there were regular carrying services for delivering goods between towns. But the carrier might lose it, or the ship might be wrecked. An awful lot of correspondence did go astray. Someone with unlimited resources, like Philip II, Queen of, uh, King of Spain, and Elizabeth's great adversary, with his worldwide empire, would insist that ambassadors sent a dispatch several t- times, several weeks running, to ensure one got through. So the main newspaper the problem when newspapers come along in 1605 was how to ensure news was reliable. Corroboration 
was the key issue. And often newspapers would say something like, we hear from Lyon that the Duke de Guise is murdered, but it is not yet confirmed. And newspaper reporting in that era was, in that sense, very honest. I'm, I'm often asked about fake news in the early modern period. And I have to say to people, it really doesn't exist. They were doing their very, very best in a much more difficult news market. Now, the other thing I should mention, and this is really important, is that um, when you were sending a letter through a commercial service like a carrier or, 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 or the, it was normally paid for by the recipient. This meant that unless you sent the, a letter over with a servant, it seems to be still common in the age of Jane Austen, that the arrival of the postman could be financially embarrassing for the recipient. So the penny post, when it was finally introduced in England, almost in the 19th century, was important because it passed the burden to the sender rather than the recipient. Now, the most tragic example I found of this was when a, a Dutchman was released from slavery in North Africa and deposited in Marseille. Now, he needed to get back to Paris, but had literally no money. So he sent a series of letters to his church asking them to send him funds to get home. But the church refused to accept the postage charges. So we know about this because they then were returned to the post office where they were built up in a great big sack of returned mail. And that's why we know about this tragic story today. In his book, Andrew provides a map of the imperial postal system in the 16th century, which was a system of postal service under the Holy Roman Empire. Andrew writes that this system conflicted with the English and French systems of letter delivery and that, quote, Habsburg domains sat astride many of Europe's major trade routes, end quote, and that the restrictions of the English system based on closed royal networks created a begrudging opinion of the postal service among the English postmasters. Andrew, it is easy this far away from Shakespeare's London to think that an established postal system simply wasn't invented yet. And that's why letter delivery was sometimes unreliable for Shakespeare's life. But with the imperial postal system of the Habsburgs literally crossing paths with the English postmasters, why did Britain not adopt a similar and much more effective system of information delivery? Well, you, you may well ask. I think it was something of an error. It's amazing that the kings of England and France didn't follow this example and open their own messenger service to commercial use because that would solve, solve the problem. It's possible there was no one with the resources of turn and taxes to set up such a system because it must have been a large uh, investment with no clear certainty of success. But I really suspect it was because knowledge is power. And by keeping exclusive hold over the postal service, the monarchs did ensure that they were better informed than most of their subjects. And that's a critical aspect to their authority. Now, the exception was the international merchant community. And monarchs did sometimes make use of them, both by calling them in to ask for information and to deliver letters, particularly in hostile lands where their own messengers might have been in danger. And it was obviously also very much cheaper to ask a merchant heading that way to deliver a message than sending off a messenger of their own. 
We know that Brian Chuk was the first English postmaster officially appointed to the office of Governor of the King's Post, a precursor to the office of Postmaster General of the United Kingdom, by Henry VIII in 1512. But what exactly was his job? Shakespeare's plays make messengers seem very personal, unique, and dedicated mm-hmm. to the individual sending the letter, often saying things like, my messenger. But the existence of the office of an official postmaster in England conflicts with that idea. What was the system for messengers delivering a letter? Did they take a letter the entire distance themselves, representative of the person sending the communication? Or was there something like a mailbox where you gave the letter to a government agent working for the postmaster general and then entrusted that person to deliver your communication? Hmm. I think, uh, well, Chute's task was to organize the king's mail service. And that could mean sorting and reading the incoming post. But most importantly, it meant organizing for the king's orders and confidential advice to get to his officers in the counties. And you have to realize that this becomes ever more urgent, not least because war becomes quite frequent, but also because the government is taking on ever greater responsibilities during the 16th century for different aspects of life. There's plenty of bridges being built, there's plenty of social legislation, there's uh, legislation on crime, and all of this has to be made known to the sheriffs and magistrates in the county so that they can keep order on on the king's behalf. And then when troops are to be raised. This too has to come from levies from the kingdom. So most importantly, Duke's task, and it's one that he carried off rather well, was to organise the king's messenger service. And he attempted to accomplish this by ordering all towns to keep horses in readiness for the arrival of the king's messengers, so that they could then deliver their messages at one place and ride on in a new house, on a new horse to the next town. Now, this was easier to command than to enforce, particularly as towns were meant to meet the cost of this service from their own funds. There was no central funding provided for this. And without constant diligence, the towns were likely to let this service wither away and die. This sounds a lot like the Pony Express that appeared in the American West for the 19th century. So I'm wondering if this was a single person who changed horses at each juncture, or was there a relay system for long distances? Well, uh, as far as the King's service was concerned, the post provided a relay service. This wasn't as efficient in England as the Imperial Post, which had permanent post offices set up at fixed distances from each other. The distance was originally set at 38 kilometers between the postal stations under the original contract with Turn and Taxis, improving to 30 kilometers and then 22 in the second half of the 16th century. And this was the most efficient way of speeding uh, the speed of transit and, and, and improving it. Now, the speed of delivery, if you weren't the king or the emperor depended very much on what you paid and how reliable was the particular service. If you were someone from Shakespeare's own uh, level in society, you might be relying on a personal friend, you might be relying on a carrier service, you'd be only on a very special occasion would you give it to a messenger who would ride the entire distance. 
And of course, the more hands the message passes through, the more chance there is of it being lost. Even on an imperial post, though, it couldn't go faster than the speed of a horse. When in the 17th century, the increase in volume of mail encouraged the use of coaches, post coaches were introduced and, and, and the speed of delivery got worse because roads were so terrible and roads seemed to have got worse in the 17th and 18th century than they'd been in the 16th. The newspapers actually provide a vivid indication of this problem because each dispatch is headed with the place it's come from and the date. So it says Rome, 4th of July, or Moscow, 12th of May. So depending on which issue it's in, you can tell exactly how long it's taken to reach the news office. In the case of Britain, you have the extra challenge of the channel, and adverse winds across the channel could hold the news up for weeks. And this didn't change till the age of steam. Even in 1815, it took the best part of a week for news of the Battle of Waterloo to reach London, and that only had to come from Brussels. So this was a a major problem. How did news delivered via messenger or by letter differ from the pamphlets, broadsides, and other printed material that circulated London? Were all of these things considered credible sources for information? All of them were considered credible, but they differed very much. In a letter, or particularly the manuscript newsletters, um, which merchants favoured, the so-called Evisi, the news would be presented unembellished. And this is the tradition that newspapers uh, took over. If you look at 17th century newspapers, they are just these manuscript newsletters rendered in print. They have short reports, no interpretation, and it's assumed that the reader knows enough to be able to interpret the events themselves. Now, the key difference was that pamphlets were written after the event. When a battle was over, when a war was won, when a prisoner had been executed or a flood had happened. This meant that the pamphleteers couldn't be undone by events. And so they offered not only an account of the event, but an explanation. And this explanation usually drew a moral, that people should mend their ways and not risk God's wrath. Pamphlets could also be polemical and partial celebrating the victory of the king, which newsletters and newspapers tried to avoid. Now, of course, other sorts of news, and this would later include newspapers, did not have the luxury of waiting to see how things would turn out. So because many people could not read or even afford even a cheap pamphlet, many received this sort of news secondhand by someone reading out a pamphlet or passing it on, or just gossip wherever people congregate, the tavern, the inn, but also the barber's shop or the pharmacist. Now, this was a specially valued location of intelligence, since when your servants went to a pharmacist, they would wait while the potion was mixed for you, and they would chat to one another. And the pharmacist heard all of this gossip. This is valuable information. And I remember when I was working on Luther, his ally, Lucas Cranach, the printer, one of the richest men in town, bought the pharmacy business so he could know, I think, who was in who was about to die and not be able to pay their debts. The printer's shop was also a prime source of gossip, particularly in St. Paul's Churchyard in London, 
where the printers and booksellers congregated. You, you could pick up a lot of news there while idly turning the pages of books on the stall. And many people went to look and hear as much as they went to buy. Letters were obviously used to communicate official events of state, and we have surviving letters of things like grocery lists that were sent from wife to husband. But Andrew writes that pamphlets were used in Shakespeare's lifetime, much like the newspapers of today, to communicate both humorous information as well as true crime. Andrew, what does the Thomas Purefoot's 1586 account of a triple murder tell us about the reporting of crime through written publication during Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, you have to cast yourself back to a world where people believed that God and the devil were both ceaselessly active in the world, and every ill deed would catch up with you in this world and the next. And that's what's really interesting about the account of the triple murder. It didn't even take place in England. So this was not really fresh news. It was an account of, of a terrible murder in Rouen. But it was a morality tale of how unexpectedly death could come and incidentally, the dangers of strangers. This sort of report was very powerful, whether it had taken place in the next street or over the channel in France, because most well-off families, and some not very well-off families, have servants living in their house. And they didn't know them well, and they didn't know if they could be trusted. The 17th century newspapers, which I've read, are full of stories of servants robbing or even killing their master or mistress. Another very popular form of news newsheet, often accompanied by a fine woodcut, were celestial apparitions. These were take, frequently taken as portents of God's anger, and readers were warned to brace themselves for a forthcoming tragedy. Is that something like a horoscope that we have today, only perhaps a little less, you know, frivolous? You find a horoscope. Uh, the, the equivalent of a horoscope is really uh, a book of prophecies or an almanac or, or calendar. These would generally be a, a half-page illustration, and then below, either a prose account of what's going on or a verse account. And it's very revealing that many of these were written by clergymen. So that brings the, the close connection between these things and moral tales. Now, sometimes these would be events we today understand as natural occurrences, so as the northern lights. But in a world where God was ever present, science took second place. When we say letters, we assume that the messages are being written on paper with ink and delivered in a folded fashion. However, Andrew writes that in 1973, a team of archaeologists uncovered a find in Northumberland that produced surviving wax tablets and wood slivers that indicated some messages may have actually been inscribed into wood tablets. Andrew, was ink and paper the primary medium for written messages in Shakespeare's lifetime? Yes, they were. The wood slivers and wax tablets come from a settlement on Hadrian's Wall, so from the era of the Roman occupation of Britain. It, it was one more way in which the Roman Empire prefigured so many of the features of uh, European civilization. Its postal service was extraordinarily good for the time. And the roads were built partly so that they could get their armies into every corner of the empire, but also so that they could get their postal service. By the 16th century, however, uh, paper and ink were the dominant media for writing. Though some more opulent books and some significant documents like title deeds or charters were still written on parchment or vellum made from animal skins. 
but by this time, paper was no longer rare. Though, interestingly, all the paper in England had to be imported. Uh, this was because paper was made from pulped linen rags. And in Britain, given its cold climate, uh, a wool-wearing culture, there wasn't enough supply of linen rags to allow wide-scale paper production. Andrew, your book contains an absolute wealth of information on news and communication in Shakespeare's lifetime, including the role of sermons, the published propaganda around St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, Rome's communication about the Spanish fleet during the conflict with the Spanish Armada, and so much more as our conversation here today has only touched the tip of the iceberg of what you cover in your excellent book. We will link to Andrew's book in today's show notes, and I encourage you to read that. Uh, The rest of the book is certainly worth the read. But Andrew, as historians here at That Shakespeare Life, I know that in addition to your book, we would like to explore further into the history of letters, the postal service, and information spread for Shakespeare's lifetime. So what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? I strongly recommend a book by Philip Beale called A History of the Post in in England, From the Romans to the Stuarts, uh, published in 1998. Uh, that takes us over the ground in an extremely, extremely clearly written manner. And now there's also a let, later book by Beale called England's Mail, Two Millennia of Letter Writing. But don't buy both of them. Uh, uh, don't be fooled into buying both of them as I was, because actually it's a new edition of the earlier text and actually not much change. Philip Beale is also involved in another project called The Corsini Letters, This explores a wonderful collection of 3,600 letters written to the Italian Corsini family, originally from Florence and then trading London. It's the largest extant archive for any English merchants of the 16th and 17th century. Unfortunately, most of the records were, were destroyed in the Great Fire of London, but these survive. The Corsini were one of the Italian families who made use of the Stranger Merchant Post, a private service financed by the German Italian merchants residents in England, linking London and the Channel ports and London and the continent through the Imperial Postal Network. Now, when it comes to the Imperial Postal Network, unfortunately, by far the best book, the, the definitive study, Wolfgang Beringer's In Zeichende Merkur, has never been translated from German, which is a great frustration and still deserves to be translated now. Beringer has, however, published an article on communications revolutions, uh, which offers an all-too-brief summary of that work. We will link to these resources as well as Andrew's book in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you check there to find direct links to all of these. And if you speak German, you're in luck because one of the best books will be there (laughs) for you. So, Andrew, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, fair enough. Well, it would have to be very long and have to be very good. So boringly, I would take Tolstoy's War and Peace. But having read it, I would then make an index after it. Uh, and after I'd been rescued, I would sell that to a publisher so they could publish the definitive edition. Uh, I think it's a great shame that uh, novels don't 
don't have indices. In fact, I think any book over 300 pages long should have an index. So we don't have that terrible experience repeatedly of having to page backwards and forwards to find whoever Kurt was or whether <laughs> Mabel was the sister or the mother-in-law. I, I feel this so personally. I Yes, I agree with you entirely. And hands down, you have used your time on your desert island the most productively of anyone on our show. <laughs> I, I like this suggestion very much. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, there's got two projects. I have a history of book collecting coming out. It's called The Library of Fragile History, and it will be published on October the 14th in the UK and I think 9th of November in, in the US. It's co-written with a St. Andrew's colleague, Arthur de Vedran, and we explore the history of book collecting from the ancient library of Alexandria, to Google Books with plenty of surprises on the way. Then next, I'm going to write a, a, a book exploring the relationship between books, libraries, and war. That is not just how libraries were destroyed by war, a story which is a sad story which is often told, but how books acted as agents of war, incubating ideologies and providing comfort for readers both on the home front and in the trenches. And I think that will be out in 2023. Well, Andrew, I know that we will look forward to, I am personally looking forward to reading the library book that you've published and seeing the new book that's going to come out. These are excellent resources. We hope to connect with you again in the future. Thank you so much for being here and sharing of your expertise with us here on That Shakespeare Life. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it very much. To find resources for today's episode, including images, woodcuts, and more about letters and the postal service from Shakespeare's lifetime, including a picture of Brian Tuke and more information on him under Henry VIII, be sure to stop by the show notes. We've put links to Andrew Pedigree's work, resources he recommends, and you can even leave us a comment to let us know what you think about the show today or ask a question of something you'd like to know more about. Explore all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 181. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP181. If you like this episode and you want to go even further into the life of William Shakespeare with games, activities, and bonus history interviews not available anywhere else, then you want to become a member at That Shakespeare Life. Access the entire video streaming library full of hundreds of animated plays, documentaries, bonus interviews, and more. Find all the benefits of membership and sign up today at CassidyCash.com member. That's CassidyCash.com member. I'll see you inside. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.